go to Ben High School, and I'm part of our youth group. Um, our reading today is Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Um, as you're there, I invite you to open your uh, Bibles to Luke 15. Now, quick word on our kids before we release our kiddos. Only the kindergarten and first grade are headed out today. Second through fifth are staying in with us. Parents, if you need to grab a packet on the back table and you didn't do that, you can go do that now. But second and fifth, second through fifth, staying in with us. Kindergarten and first, you can go ahead and take off. Also, as they're doing that, our amazing First Impressions team are going to walk through some of our ushers and hand you one of these Bless Five cards. Everybody in the room needs two of these. So you got two in your little packet. Maybe some of you didn't pick it up. Maybe some of the kids didn't get it. I want everybody in the room to have two of these. We're going to use these later. But they'll come through and pass those out. As they're doing the, that, um, just a couple quick announcements. I want to echo Jamie's announcement about Family Summit. Uh, we, it is a great time if you've been before. We're going to bring some experts on the family in. We're going to look at s- specific passages in Scripture that talk about the family. I believe it's more difficult than ever to raise a family. How do you deal uh, to raise disciples of Jesus within your home? Our, we're so busy and so hurried our lives are. We're going to talk about how to uh, tackle technology, what's the appropriate way to do that. Teenagers, you're going to be in the room with us um, for those uh, couple uh, Sundays at 930. I encourage you to be there. Teens, let me just speak to you real quickly. I believe you're going to learn some things, some, some boundaries to put around technology yourself that even your parents don't have to impose that might actually help the trajectory of your life get to where you want it to be. So we're going to talk about... Um, some of those things. And also next week during service, we have a really big announcement on our future meeting location. I've asked you to pray for that. Uh, we're getting closer and closer and closer. Um, and I think we're ready to kind of update you on what we've been praying towards and working towards. So that'll be next week uh, during uh, our gathering. Today, we're going to continue our all in series, and our focus is on everybody shares. Not everybody, like, shares their toys. We've already done the everybody gives. That was a generosity. Um, today we're looking at everybody shares, and we're going to talk about sharing the good news of Jesus. But before you break out in hives or let your anxiety run wild, let me let you in on a little secret. You're made for this. Those of you who are believers in Jesus, you have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, doing this very thing. All we have to do is participate with what he is already doing inside of us. But instead of focusing uh, on sharing your faith with the lost, that's really not what we're doing. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I want to first move our focus off the lost and onto the one who seeks and saves them. You've heard two stories This morning, uh, parables that Jesus told about lost things, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Now, I want to read the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. I'm not going to read it in entirety, but just a little bit, starting in verse 11. If you'll follow me, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while still, while still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Would you pray with me, please? And as I pray aloud, if you would pray silently, would you just ask God to speak to you? Maybe it's been a long time since you've heard his voice. You felt him direct you or encourage. I believe he wants to speak to you today. Would you pray and just invite him to speak to you as I pray aloud? God, we love you. We thank you for this this morning, for the change in seasons, the um, further just revelation of a creative God. And we ask, God, that, that you would speak to us. This seems to be a A difficult time as we wonder about what's happening over the Gulf. We wonder about what our future holds. But God, we're reminded that the presence of the enemy is no threat to the king. And this has not taken you off guard at any moment and in any way. We need your wisdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We spread the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And as Jesus is telling this, uh, the importance of the thing that is lost is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger, just as a, someone in the movies would tell a story and it starts kind of small and it gets kind of bigger and weightier and because the lost sheep was one of a hundred and the lost coin was one of ten and then the lost son was one of two. But the movement in the story is not about the lost son or the journey to, of the lost sheep or the crisis of the lost son. No, these three things, these three passages have this in common. The protagonist in all three stories is one who has lost something and is actively seeking it. And Jesus would make the connection. This is the heart of the Father. Now, as we started, if you didn't catch the very first verse, you missed a lot of the context. The very first verse, first two verses, it says in verse 1, now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying about Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It was the muttering of the Pharisees is what triggers these parables. Jesus could hear them muttering, probably muttering loudly, so that they know, not that they had to, there's several other times where Jesus knew what people were thinking and he answered them, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm picturing them over there muttering loudly, like this guy thinks he's the Messiah and yet he receives these sinners and eats with them. There's no way he is who he says he is. This man receives sinners bad enough, eats with them, strike three. 
The tax collectors and sinners were the outcasts, and for many reasons. Some of them were openly immoral, some were deformed and diseased, and the thought of the day was if you were born deformed or diseased, then you must have done something wrong. Jesus would clearly uh, combat that and said, absolutely not, that is not the case. But that's what they thought, and so they, they lumped them in a group of outsiders. They were sinners. They were tax collectors. Now, most of us have no cognitive ability to understand what a disgrace it was to be a tax collector. I, I, I don't have a modern-day example that would, that would make you uh, revulse back. See, we, we've made the tax collector, you know, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. We see him, he's a chief tax collector in chapter 19 of, of Luke's gospel. And we made up a little cool song about him being a wee little man. And that's what he was. That's fine. And we were told that the tax collector was a man who was supposed to get 50 from you, but instead he takes 100 because uh, he wants to get rich. And that's a good story, but it isn't completely true. See, the tax collectors were the traitors. This is why Zacchaeus was shunned by the rest of society. And on his best day, he was hated. No one wanted to touch him. At this point in history, the world was ruled by Rome. From India to England, Rome ruled everything. And they were a brutal regime. And the only way to oppress an area that large is to have an increasingly large army was through taxes. And so Zacchaeus was an Israelite who purchased the right from Rome to raise funds to pay the oppressive occupying army that was responsible for the brutal death and rape and confiscation of lands of thousands and thousands of people. But he lives next door to you. He was hated. There's no cultural equivalent to the wickedness that that was a tax collector. Maybe it would be something that Maybe it was, we would accuse Jesus of hanging with um, ISIS and Hamas uh, mixed with some Russian spies and some devil worshipers. That, maybe that would be something that would revulse us to that level. And why in the world was Jesus hanging with them? And not only is, peop, is Jesus friendly to them, not only does he welcome them, but he eats with them. To eat with someone in that day was not, hey, we sh shared Taco Bell next to each other. It was a, uh, a mark of hospitality and friendship. The other group in the story is the Pharisees and scribes. These were the religious people. They had gone to school their whole life. They had memorized most of the Old Testament. They knew it so well they could say it backwards. These were the religious of the religious of the religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes. These were people who were proud of their rule keeping, who judged other people, who were bitter and lonely. And when they saw people in need, they walked on the other side of the street, as Jesus talks about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They were a real piece of work. And they did all of this in the name of God. They're the only group that we find Jesus literally yelling at at some points, yet he was still friendly with them too. He ate with them at several of the Pharisees' homes. Eating together meant that he was befriending them. They couldn't believe that Jesus was trying to build a faith community with these people. They were outcasts. There has never been a faith community with these kinds of people in it, they were telling each other. And Jesus responds as he has before, you're right, but I am building something new. An attitude To that audience, and in this attitude, Jesus teaches these parables. And I want to point out a few things about us and then about the heart of the Father. First, us, is that we're lost, hopelessly lost. This is a minor theme that runs through all three of these parables, lostness. And the first one, Jesus, the master storyteller, he invents this story, by the way, uses sheep as a subject. One, because of the context that they would understand. There were a lot of shepherds and sheep, and they understand their value to an agrarian society. 
also because it represents our condition. He didn't use a cow or a pig or even dogs or cats or birds. He uses sheep because in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, inspired through God, writes that all we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53. We have turned everyone to his own way. This really, in a sense, would be an insult. A sheep is a stupid animal. It always gets lost. It always needs direction. No other animal needs a shepherd like sheep do. Like sheep, we are hopelessly lost. And like sheep, we need to be rescued. These parables help us understand something of what it means to be lost. To, be, to begin with, the sheep is, is out of place. The, the coin is out of place. The sun is out of place. Because sheep belong with the flock and the coins belong uh, on a necklace or a chain. And because the lost sons and daughters belong in fellowship with their family. But to be lost also means to be out of service. A sheep is no value to the shepherd. A lost coin has no value to the owner. And a lost son cannot experience the enriching fulfillment of family. We are like sheep on a ledge and we've all gone astray. You see, uh, this American attitude in us, we like to put ourselves as the one who finds them. We're not the finder in the story. We're the ones that were lost. Not only are we lost, but we're helpless. If you find a sheep, they don't just follow you back home. They keep walking in the wrong direction. The text says in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. You literally have to grab them, throw them over your shoulder, and carry them back to safety. When I read this text, I kind of thought initially that, you know, I think I got a picture. It's like Jesus holding this little lamb. No, go to the other one. Yeah, yeah, this is the, this is the shepherd, and that's me, the sheep, and he just, you know, just comes and scoops me up and pets my head and just gets me back on course. A real picture is the other one of the shepherd literally throwing the sheep over, holding his legs so the legs don't kick the shepherd as he takes the sheep where they need to go. See, shepherds need, I mean, sheep need a shepherd. Maybe you've seen this little meme going around, and I don't know if it's going to work back there. It's the next one. It's an animated. It's going to show you. Yeah, yeah. I don't need any sound on it, but will that play? Can you click on that one play? It won't play. You've seen this. This is where he rescues the sheep out of the big ditch and the sheep takes like three jumps and then right back in the ditch. Me when Jesus rescues me, right? I want to emphasize this a bit because growing up in the Bible Belt and growing up in the South specifically, we don't like to believe that we're helpless. Many of us find ourselves connecting more with the Pharisee and tax collector in this passage than we do with the, more with the Pharisee than the tax collector. We, we don't want to believe that, that we're helpless. And so we try to earn God's favor by all the good things we do. But no, like sheep, we're helpless and we need to be rescued. A, a sheep can contribute nothing to its rescue just as we nothing to our salvation. It would not have helped if God just sent us a great teacher or a prophet to tell us how we should live or if God just sent a great storyteller that just inspired us to live better or get better. No, Jesus said, I actually sent you them and you killed them too. So he came himself. Because, see, we like to think we're more like the dog, right? Like we're just a little off track. We've been chasing a squirrel. Our owner comes whistling at us we get back on track everything's fine no we're like a sheep he's got to literally come and get us throw us over his shoulder and walk back we're lost and we're helpless but this is what i really want you to see in the passage as we are wholly loved to really get the full meaning of this we have to see it not only am i hopelessly lost and helpless i am loved 
So loved that the shepherd would leave the 99 to come find me. So loved that he would stop everything to search for me. So loved that he would wait as the father did in the parable, longing, looking for his son to come home. And before the son ever got the excuse out of his mouth, the father wrapped him up in love. This is so powerful. The shepherd will do anything to bring me home, and he does everything to bring me home. This is not something we only have to believe, friends. This has to become the core of our identity, one that surpasses all other identities, the beloved identity. I think John, who wrote the gospel that bears his name, John the Beloved, I think he's the one who got it right. He called himself that because I think he really believed that just in the same sense as we should believe that. I am Luke, the Beloved of Jesus. The one whom Jesus loved. It was John's main identity. Not the one who saw the miracles, not the one who saw transfiguration, not the one who wrote the gospel, not the one who saw the vision in order to write revelation. No, it was not, he didn't brag on any of those. He said, you know what, I'm, I'm John, the one whom Jesus loved. Friends, you too. The Bible clearly states that you have to turn to Jesus to be saved but not to be loved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Think about that. Our Father loves you. Whether you're killing it following him or whether you're one of the prodigals in the story and you're a long way off, I just want you to hear the Father loves you. Those who have run far away, he's eagerly awaiting your return. A few chapters later in Luke 19, this is Zacchaeus. Jesus again confirms this theme that the posture of the heart of Jesus is one who seeks after the lost. He's there in Jericho, which would be a main the Hamptons of its day where all the priests would, would go after they had served for a little respite. It was a, uh, it was a wealthy city. And Jesus has already said he's walking to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And he goes through Jericho and the crowds of people are all around and they're, they're vying for his attention. And there's so many important religious people in that town. There's so many rich people that could fund his ministry. There's so many other disciples even that were following Jesus. And of all the people in the city, Jesus goes and finds the one man who is hated the most, Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus is in the tree and Jesus stops as he's walking through town on his way to give his life as a ransom for many on the cross. And he says, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down? We're going to your house today. He didn't even just befriend him, tax collectors and sinners. He said, we're going to go eat together. Zacchaeus' life is radically changed. But you have to ask yourself, why Zacchaeus? Jesus, of all the people, why Zacchaeus? And he said, he answers, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Priority number one was seeking and saving the lost. And if that is what burns in the heart of God, friends, shouldn't that burn in our heart as well? He leaves the 99 to go for the one. A singular obsession. The good shepherd, he cares for and he counts his sheep. He knows how many are there. Look at what the text says. If he has lost one of them, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. A few months ago, we lost our Apple TV remote. 
and they made those things the size of a fork, so you would lose them. I mean, they are just the tiniest, coolest-looking thing. I looked for it for about 10 minutes and then gave up. Who needs to watch TV that bad, right? Let's just order another one of them things. This is not the posture. You say, well, that's just the Apple TV remote. Maybe you've lost something else. Maybe you've lost diamond out of your ring worth a lot more than a remote control and feverishly look for it and retrace your steps and hope to find it. And what do you search for? Maybe a day or two? But this is not the posture of the father. It's not the posture of Jesus. It's not the posture of the shepherd here. It says that he goes after the one that is lost. Let those words sit on your heart until he finds it. When just one is missing, doesn't he go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Not for just a good amount of time and not just with reasonable effort and not does he search until he gets tired. No, he searches until he finds it. Until it's in his arms. It's over his shoulder and they're on their way home. That's the heart of the father. Notice, too, a theme in every one of these passages. They end with joy. When he found the lost sheep, he puts it on his shoulders in verse 5, rejoicing. And he comes home and calls all his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. Or in the parable of the lost coin, after she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. And of the lost son, when he finally comes home, he says, Bring all the friends together. Let us eat and celebrate. They, they all three end with joy when the thing that is lost becomes found again. Not begrudgingly. You know, some of us, I think we endeavor in this very thing, we endeavor begrudgingly. Oh, God has called us to, to share the good news with others and begrudgingly we have to do it. Because we got, you know, we got to keep him happy. If he gave me that whole salvation thing, I guess I could do a little bit. You know, when you, when you get in bed and you realize you forgot something or didn't turn the fan on, didn't lock the front door, didn't check the garage door, and you, you got in bed and you're comfortable and you're like, oh, I got to go do that. So begrudgingly, you like, for the safety of my family, I'm going to go check the things. Oh, you know, you know the worst for me is when I get in bed and someone has taken my phone charger. It is like the no-no at the Allen house. You want to see me get in the flesh? Come take my phone charger because I have a routine. I get in bed and say goodnight to Ashley and she rolls over, takes her four hours to go to bed. No, normally doesn't take me that long. I read for about 10, 15 minutes and I have about a 30 second window. You know, when you're real sleepy, I got just enough time to plug the phone in and roll over and then it's done. I'll see you in the morning. That's a, literally, that's my routine. And so this happens, and I get all oh, getting tired. I'm going to turn it off, and I'm going to roll over, and I'm going to reach in. The, the, there's no thing there. Where's, where's the charger? Where's the charger? I look back over. Charger's gone. Hey, babe, you know where my charger is? She says in a very uh, de-escalating voice. You know, I think Ellie used it. Uh, it's normally always Ellie. Um, I think she used it. She asked me. I told her she could use it. And so now I have a problem because I can't be mad at, you know, my wife. And begrudgingly, I get up and start stomping as loud as I can as if to wake the whole house up to know that daddy's not happy that someone took the charger. Several times I have found that I just knocked the charger off and it's under the bed. It's no one's fault. This is not how the father searches for us.
Dadgummit, there goes Luke. Walking away again, I got to go find him. No, the passage says with joy he does that. He gladly does it. Why? If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. Because that's what love does. Love sacrifices without resentment because it values the object of its love more than the object of its sacrifice. Let me read that again. Love sacrifices without resentment, without begrudging. It sacrifices without resentment because it values the object of its love, the sheep that he's going to find, more than the object of its sacrifice, the long journey he's got to take. Because that's what love does. The shepherd loved the sheep more than he loved his own comfort without regret and without remorse that he would give up what he might have wanted in the moment, sleep or rest or hanging with all the other sheep or all the things he had planned. But he gave up what he wanted in the moment for what he wanted the most, the lost sheep. The love and joy that is expressed in what he does Next, it shows us the heart of the Father. So he goes and finds the sheep, and he, and he gets everybody together. He says, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. The joy is still present after the long journey, after the sheep kicking him in the face. The pain of the journey didn't distract from the joy of reconciliation. So with joy, they celebrated and then Jesus makes this spiritual connection. Now we're not talking about shepherds and sheep. He's talking about sinners and a savior. He says in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Do you know how to light up heaven in a party? Help a sinner move from lost to found. You know, I think the angels up in heaven, they look down on our worship service this morning and they're like, man, that's good. That's a, that's a good song right there. And, and the testimony about what we're trying to do for all our mission partners and the kids that are learning back there. And I think the angels are like, man, way to go, Covenant Church. You are getting it done. But you know what lights up heaven? When the lost are found. I think all the angels just sit there on the edge of the stage in heaven, if there is one of those, just looking down. Who is actually doing the work of seeking the lost? Just kind of got lost in that this week to think about. Not only is it possible for those lost and helpless to enter God's kingdom or be part of God's family, but all of heaven rejoices. Isn't that amazing? Think about the time when you were found by Jesus. Can you imagine the kind of party that the God who creates the worlds with a word and how creative our creative God is? Mr. Thomas said he just came back from the Rocky Mountains and Estes Park. You've been up there and just the wonder and majesty of the mountains and the terrain and how the, the sunset's different. It's just, you've ever been there. You're just like, man, we serve such a creative God. Now that creative God is in charge of the party in heaven when you move from being a lost person to be a found person. Isn't that crazy? They already had the party up there and I think we're gonna join in that continuous party one day. For many of you, you turning to him was the inciting event of that party in heaven. And it's incredible to think about it. Where you were found by Jesus. When you turned to the good shepherd as it made him your Lord and Savior. And you found forgiveness and peace and joy. And your shame and guilt were finally dealt with. And your purpose and identity was restored. Just think about that. Freedom has come and you've been found. The story of the gospel is that the war has been won. And friends, you have been set free. Now, this results in a unique kind of human community, the city of God within the city of man, Augustine would call it. This is what the church is, not just pretty buildings or nice people. No, it is literally a counterculture of people who've been found by Jesus, a community that welcomes when others shun, a community that forgives when others cancel, 
a community that loves when others hate, a community that's engaged when others are apathetic, a community that accepts the people that others reject, a community that restores when others condemn, we can keep going. This is the new way. This is the way of Jesus and the people who follow Jesus. This is why Jesus said, you're going to be like a city on a hill, and the darker the world gets, the more you're going to shine. Just make sure you keep the main things the main things, that you reflect the heart of the Father for the lost. The things we learn about lost things in this passage is that God goes after them. So back to our focus today, everybody shares. Evangelism isn't a response to guilt or shame. That's a tactic of the enemy, friends. The, the father never works that way. Evangelism is the overflow of love. It is proclaiming that freedom really is possible. Freedom from performance, freedom from striving, freedom from earning, freedom from posturing, freedom from living in darkness, freedom from making up lie after lie after lie, freedom from generational curses, freedom from a lack of discipleship, freedom, freedom from sin. Freedom is possible. You know, Juneteenth is a holiday in June. The celebration of freedom finally reaching Galveston, Texas. On June 19th, 1865, Union troops finally reached the enslaved people of Galveston with the news that they were actually free. And celebration broke out in the streets and people singing that liberation had finally come. But what's sad about the story is that their freedom had been declared two and a half years before this. Their freedom had been secured with the Emancipation Proclamation. But the news took more than two and a half years to reach them. And for those two plus years, people who were rightfully free were living enslaved because the story of freedom had not reached their ears. Do you see the correlation? The gospel is a message of freedom. The war has been won. You have been set free. But who was going to announce such freedom? Who announced it to you? Someone came alongside you and announced that such freedom is possible, that you don't have to live a hopeless life, that you don't have to live a life without joy and without peace. You don't have to live a life enslaved to the sins and patterns of your family that, that, that were handed. You don't have to live that way. You can live a life of free. Someone announced that freedom, the gospel, to you. And most of you are here today, and you remember that, and you're so thankful for it. And it may have been a lot of people that announced it to you, that you heard the story of freedom again and again, and it didn't make any sense to you until you understood that you had been living as a slave. We have the privilege of announcing freedom. Yet many of us are so busy and so distracted by our everyday that we have forgotten the heart of the Father. We think the lost aren't interested, but little do we know where God is at work around us, waiting on someone that he could use to go and announce that God loves them and that Jesus has come and that he's made a way to be reconciled back to the Father through the cross. Who's going to announce it? Who's going to tell your neighbors? Who's going to tell your coworker? Who's going to tell them? Who's announcing the freedom? Can I tell you, most of the people who are lost today, they care nothing about my sermons. They care nothing about the worship in this room. They care nothing. They're, they're lost. They're enslaved. we're really honest, most of us don't share the gospel because we've just forgotten how good it is. We've forgotten its power. We've forgotten the heart of Jesus. We've forgotten what it means to be lost. We've forgotten that the gospel is beautiful. Just think about how it so radically changed your life. 
If you've never read the biography of James Frazier named Mountain Rain, you got to go get it. I've been talking about it for a couple years now. Jason started rereading it about a couple months ago, and I'm like, well, i got to pick it up again. So we're talking about Mountain Rain. James Frazier was an engineering student and a concert pianist in England in the early 1900s. And towards the middle of his uh, training to be an engineer, he was handed a pamphlet that would change his entire life. One that he agonized over and he read it several times a day through prayer for a week or two before it actually changed the course of his life. This is what the pamphlet said. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked, of course, as he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I'm certain the pamphlet read, that most of the excuses that we are accustomed to make with such good conscience now, we would be wholly ashamed of then. So at the age 22, James would lead his, leave his promising future in engineering and he would move to remote inland China to bring the gospel to a tribe that had no written language to speak of. And it was difficult. And he would serve there for years, learning a language, learning how to write such a language, becoming skilled and traversing the incredibly difficult terrain. They said of him that he could traverse the terrain better than, better than anyone else. But the work was laborious and slow. And after many years of work and sacrifice with almost no fruit, he began to doubt his calling and certainly his strategy. But just as discouragement began to, to creep in, James felt this conviction that what needed to change was not his strategy, but his prayer life. He would write in the book a letter to his supporters. I think I might have this on the screen. You know how a child is sometimes rebuked by his parents for asking something in a wrong way? Perhaps in the case of a child, he writes, for asking rudely, the parents will say, ask me properly. And that is just what God seemed to be saying to me then. Ask me properly. You've been asking me to do this for the last four years without ever really believing that I would do it now. Ask in faith, James. I felt the burden clearly. I went to my room alone one afternoon and I knelt in prayer. I knew that the time had come for the prayer of faith. And then knowing, fully knowing what I was doing and what it might cost me, I definitely committed myself to this petition of faith. I cast my burden upon the Lord, he writes, and I rose from my knees with the deep, restful conviction that I had already received the answer. So here's James trying to reach the Lisu people. He's been over there four years, left his promising career. He's seen one or two converts in four years. He's doubting his calling. He's doubting his strategy. And God spoke to him and said, James, I want you to pray, believing that I can do what seems impossible. What happened next was astonishing. It wasn't immediate, he explains, but God began to work in the lives of the Lisu people and Ways that I had not ever seen up to this point. A few believers here and there, then, then more and more, but still slow. At the 10-year mark on the cusp of him moving even maybe to a more fertile ground, to a, to a new place where God might be more at work, revival broke out. James described it as the heavens opened. Men came traveling miles to find him and invite him to come and explain the gospel to them that they had heard. But before he even got to the place to explain the gospel, the gospel had taken root there and entire villages had turned to Christ. A spirit of conviction and waves of repentance became typical for years. So at the end of his ministry, nearly 100,000 people had come to Christ. And to this day, some of our ministry partners that, that live in Southeast Asia will come to a village and they'll find that village, the entire village evangelized and growing in Christ. And they trace it back to this man's work, this man who discipled people, who discipled people who reached the village. Isn't that amazing? And it all began with one man and one prayer and one step of obedience. 
This is what James said about evangelism. I don't have this on the screen, but I want you to listen to this. From a human point of view, evangelistic work is like a man going about in a dark, damp valley with a lighted match in his hand, seeking to ignite anything ignitable. And yet, miraculously, sometimes it seems as if God has gone before you into that damp valley with wind and with sunshine and prepared a few dry places. And when the lighted match is applied, here a shrub and there a tree and there a few sticks and here a heap of leaves, it takes fire and it gives light and warmth long after the kindling match and its bearer have passed on. James says, This is what God wants to see, what God looks for his people to pray for. I have this quote on the screen. Little patches of fire burning all over the world. Isn't that amazing? Can you see it in the darkness of our landscape today? Can you see it in your workplace? Darkness, little patches of fire. Can you see it in our city? As it grows more and more dark, little patches of fire. Can you see it in the schools that we send our kids to? Little patches of fire, God on the work, sunlight and and wind and drying it out. And and he's doing the work and he's preparing. And and all we're doing is coming, bearing the good news, announcing that freedom has come. Friends, this is why we share the gospel. This is why we live out the gospel. This is why we pray with faith that people would be changed by the gospel. This is why God came. This is what God loves. Let me close by giving you three ways you can intentionally partner with Jesus this week in sharing. Everybody shares. I want all of us to do this. Even the uh, kiddos in this room, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, let me promise you, you can pray. Three ways that we pray. One, we pray with faith. We pray with faith, knowing that God can change the hardest hearts. Example, when he changed Saul to Paul. Saul, a religious terrorist actively killing Christians. I don't know who was praying for him. Somebody was praying for him. Jesus himself showed up in this bright light, radically changed his life from Saul to Paul. He takes three or four years of discipleship under Barnabas, starts serving at the church at Antioch, then gets sent out to be the greatest missionary of our day. Basically, we can trace our faith here in Bossier City back to the gospel that he carried to Europe 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? The hardest of hearts. Now, some of us, I think we quit praying because it just looks so hard. And they, don't, they look like they're getting worse, not getting better. The people we're praying for, you know, they take one step in the right direction and we're like, okay, they decided to step away from some sin or sinful lifestyle. Or maybe they warmed up and went and saw one of these Christian movies that came out or they're a Kirk Cameron fan or something. They just got a little closer and you're like, okay. And then they went four steps in the other direction, right? One step forward, four steps backwards, and we're like, man, what? And we give up praying. Friends, don't give up praying with faith. Remember we did the Everybody Praise a couple weeks ago? And we give them an acronym that we're going to pee, pause, and R, remember that the God who opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence is the God who invited you to come into the throne room boldly and cast a request before the Lord and that request needs to be the lost people around you, one of those things. We pray with love. We pray with faith. In Romans 4.20, fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised. That we're like John 1, light shining in the darkness. We pray with faith. We pray with love. I heard this week this quote, what you pray for, you begin to adore. We can't pray for the lost like their projects. No, they're not projects. The Father loves them. We should love them. And we pray thirdly with a bias toward action. You heard that phrase, put your money where your mouth is? 
we should put our bodies where our prayers are. Meaning that we are praying for some people, we should interact with those people. We should try to encourage those people. We should get close to those people. We should invite those people over with a bias towards action. I've got a little bit to go, but I'll invite Rachel up. Every one of you have got a little card in your hand called Bless Five. There's two steps we're taking today. One is praying, one is sharing. Let me talk about praying just for a minute. My encouragement to you is to write five names down. If you don't have five names, then, you know, just put the names of your neighbors down, whether you know they're lost or not. Just five names down. I'm sure we've talked about this enough that there's a three or four or five people in your head, people you're praying that they would step from death into life, that they would step from lostness to being found by Jesus. Bless five. We're going to put five names down, and then we're going to commit to praying for those five names, a minute apiece, so five minutes a day, five days a week. You can have the weekend off, or if you forget, get a little buffer in there, and it works good when it says bless five. Five minutes a day, five people, five days a week. This is not something, we're, we're going to talk about this for the next decade, bless five. This is not like a, oh, this is the new clever thing. This is, this is us for the next decade. We're going to be praying for the lost. Because see, the heart of the Father comes through our praying. And when we're all up in doing our thing and we're thinking about how can I, what's, what's my uh, apologetic to convince them that, that the earth isn't flat or whatever it is, or the, 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 you know, we don't need to worry about those things. What, what we need to start thinking about is where's God at work? Little patches of fire all over the earth, all over your apartment complex. Don't tell the apartment manager you're trying to start little patches of fire all over the apartment complex. That's not going to work. That's step one. This is a two-step process. I'm going to give you time to keep thinking through that. The second step is to share. So this week, I want you to start the process of committing. And if you're like me, you need some encouragement. So... I'm going to need some help. My family, I'm going to need you to remind me when we sit down for dinner. Okay, who are we praying for? Let's just pray for them real quick. We'll just spend some time together. Need some accountability to pray. Step one, we're going to take a left and a right foot, the right step, right? We're going to pray because that gives us the heart of the Father. That unleashes the power of heaven. That clues us in to where the Spirit's at working. So many things. But two, we're going to share. And some of you think, well, I'm just ill-equipped to share the gospel. Well, then don't share the whole gospel. Some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for two or three years now, you can share the gospel. But you're a new convert, maybe you're too scared to do that. You share the gospel, you can share your story. You can just share your story. You can just brag on God a little bit. This works great, because no one ever counteracts what God's doing in your story. I did this at a coffee shop this week. Can I just tell you how good God is? And I just shared a little story. And the guy looked at me and he, he was an agnostic and he was like, well, good for you. And I was like, well, yeah, good for me. Absolutely. God's doing this work. I'd love to talk to you more about it. You know what I did? I opened the door of conversation with him. We share the gospel, remind people that Jesus loves them, invite them to read the gospel of John with you. Share the gospel, step one. Another optional step is to share, the, share your story we just talked about. To, thirdly, you can share an invitation. You can invite them to a service. You can introduce them to your missional community. You can, if you're meeting in your mission, you can pray for them. You can share an invitation. You can invite them to come to church with you next Sunday. Tell them you'll save them a seat. Or you could share a cup of coffee. Maybe... Maybe your introduction to earn the right to share the gospel with them is just to be kind and listen to them. Just to open your heart and mind to them. Ask God to help you love them like Jesus loves them. You share a cup of coffee. Most all of us in here are going to have 21 meals minus the snacks and coffees next week. What if you gave one of them, one of the 21, to someone who doesn't know Jesus? 
Fifthly, you can share burden. This is my greatest evangelism strategy. It's one I try to use every day. When I'm getting a coffee or if I'm at a restaurant or sitting next to someone waiting for my tires to be replaced, I just ask them. I said, hey, I know this might be a little weird, but is there anything that I could pray for you about? Is there anything? Sometimes they say, no, I'm good, but 90%, nine out of 10 times, they'll tell me something. And then I don't mean to embarrass them. I was like, I'll pray for that. Do you, do you mind if I pray right now for that thing? And I pray for that person and I pray for their issue they told me and I also pray for they come to faith. The enemy tries to disqualify us saying this is too hard, that this is, the fear that you feel is not from the Holy Spirit, it's from the enemy. He doesn't want you speaking freedom like this. I'm gonna give you some time to fill out your little blessed five. Now you got two cards. I want you to write it twice because, and you don't have to do this, but I, I'd love if you did. I would love for you to turn one of those cards into me when the baskets come around at the end of the service. You can put your name on them or not. It doesn't matter. We're just gonna pray for the names on there. We wanna partner with you in praying for these names. So if you wanna do that, willing to do that, I want you to write it twice. One of them's gonna go in the basket at the end. One of them I want you to keep and I want you to put it in a place I suggest you do it by your coffee pot if you're a coffee drinker or inside the fridge next to your monsters or whatever, whatever five-hour energy and whatever you do. Some of you are like, I just walk outside and drink in the sunshine. Well, stick it outside. Do that. And just spend five minutes every morning praying for these people. The hero of the story is the good shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd in John 10, the loving father, the diligent seeker of the lost. Isaiah would give us a clue to this in Isaiah 9, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, sorry, he keeps going. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus took on the posture of the lamb, of a sheep silent before his accuser so we could have the confidence of a lion. He was afflicted so we could be restored. He was condemned so we could be accepted. Just a minute, we're gonna have our communion servers come up and this is part of the step of obedience as we continue worship this morning. I want you to think of the moment when you move from being lost to being found as you take communion today. That it was the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And the blood, the, the juice represents his blood that was shared that actually purchased your salvation. I want you to think of how holy loved you are today as you take that bread and eat it. And then when you go to your seat, we're going to continue in worship. I want you to just be praying through those names you put down. Look for ways this week that you might be able to share the good news of Jesus. Would you pray with me? I invite our prayer team to the back. They'll be back there if any of you want to pray for someone. Maybe there's someone really close in your life. and You've been trying to work the courage up. Or maybe you haven't talked to them in years and years. And you just want to partner with someone in prayer. And just say, Lord, would you open an opportunity this week. Would you open their hearts to the gospel? Would you break the addiction? Would they be able to hear finally the, the gospel of freedom? Prayer team will be in back. I'll be back there with them if you want to pray with me. Our communion service will be here. 
God, we, we still are harsh before you. We repent of being too busy for the thing that you care about so much, so much that you would leave the 99 to come find the one. And all of us who are believers in this room, we have a story of being the one that was found. I pray today, Lord, do whatever needs to be done in our hearts so that we can have a heart like yours. That you would open up opportunities this week for us to share, to share the gospel, to share an invitation, to share a burden, to share a story, to share a cup of coffee, to share a meal. pray for these little patches of fire all over the world that there's some burning right now in Jerusalem and some of those innocent civilians are being hurt by this war that there's little patches of fire God you're in the midst of that you're on that redemptive edge at our workplaces at our schools God help us to see eyes like you see. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You spend some time there with the Lord, the communion service are ready, come when you're ready, and we'll sing in just a moment. The prayer team's in the back.